About a year and a half ago, I flew down to Brazil to be with our international impact partner down there. This wasn't part of an official go team trip. I was just you know, going to work on the relationship, build a friendship with our partner in Manaus. Uh, they're at the headwaters of the Amazon River, and they're working up and down the river in villages there. And so I, I flew down to Brazil. I took my son along with me. He's a photojournalist for a missions organization. And the first day we were in Manaus, which is a pretty big city if, if you've never been there. In fact, it's going to be one of the sites of the 2014 World Cup soccer games. Uh, so we're down there the first day in Manaus, and we went to the church that we work with, that we partner with, to meet with some of the leaders, about a dozen or so leaders. And for two hours, we, we tried our best to have a conversation. And it was, uh, it was very frustrating because I don't speak any Portuguese, and they spoke very little English. And so for two hours, everything that was said had to be said through a translator. By the time the two hours was done, I, I had a headache from trying to communicate what was on my heart to them and understand what was on their heart, what they were trying to say to me. So we left the church, and we're walking back to our hotel, which is about a mile away, and uh, Manaus is a bit of a rundown city, and as we're walking down the street, we pass this inner city playground. It's a crumbling asphalt surrounded with a chain-link fence. There were about 15 to 20 Brazilian boys there between the ages of you know, maybe 10 or 12 on up to 17 or 18, and they were playing a pickup game of soccer. So Andrew looks at me and he says, uh, Dad, you mind if I stay and play soccer? And I said, you know, go for it. I'll stay and watch. And so he stripped off his shirt and he ran out there. And immediately one of the guys waved him onto their team. And he was off and running. And as I watched, I noticed something. He had no problem communicating with these guys. I mean, he'd only met them a couple of minutes before. There were cultural barriers between them. They didn't speak the same language, but they were, they were communicating. Of course, they did speak the same language. They spoke the language of? Yeah, soccer. They spoke the language of soccer. Now, my anecdote about going to Brazil illustrates two sides of the Bible story that we're going to be looking at today in our series on Genesis. Okay, on the one hand, one side of the story is that we live in a world that is fragmented among people groups. You know, people groups who are separated from each other from, uh, by a multiplicity of languages, uh, unable to communicate. We're going to find out how that all happened. But the flip side of the story is that from every one of these people groups, God is drawing individuals to himself, and he's making them part of his community. So we're going to take a look at a story recorded in Genesis chapter 11. If you brought a Bible with you, which I hope you did, because we're going to be marking up our Bibles as we go. Turn to Genesis 11 and get the outline from your program. We're in the fourth week of a five-part series called In the Beginning. Uh, this is a study of the first dozen or so chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, when we started the series a couple weeks ago, I, I told you what the word Genesis means. It means origins, which is a good name for this book because in Genesis, we find described to us the origin of the world, the uh, origin of humanity, the origin of sin and its disastrous consequences, the origin of God's judgment, and today we're going to be considering the origin of nations. How did we get nations? How did we get all these people groups speaking different languages? This is a great story. Uh, this, by the way, is a true story. Yeah, liberal scholars will try to convince you that this is a legend, 
but this is not a legend. This is not a myth. This is a true story. In fact, how many of you have already started watching that Bible series on the History Channel? Okay, it's stirred up a lot of controversy in editorials, newspaper editorials, online editorials, and uh, liberal responses are, you know, what they hate about this series is it's making it seem as if these things actually happened, and we all know they didn't happen. You know, just nothing but myths. And I'm here to tell you, there are some really bright people out there, archaeologists, historians, Bible scholars, who will tell you these are true stories. Okay, what, what we're about to look at in Genesis chapter 11 really happened. And it's not just a true story, it's an extremely well-written story. Moses, who's the author, he used all sorts of word plays in this story we're about to look at in Genesis 11. Uh, plays on words, alliterations, rhyming words, words with a rhythmic cadence to them. Now, we won't be able to see that in the English. It's all there in the original Hebrew. But Bible scholars say this is a literary masterpiece. Okay, what we're about to look at was very artfully written. And I'm going to recap the story for you today in the form of four scenes. So scene number one is this, if you're filling in your outline. Scene number one I'm going to call the rebellion. And if you've got your Bible open to Genesis 11, let me read the first half of the story to you, beginning at verse 1. The rebellion. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now stop there. It starts innocent, innocently enough, doesn't it? Nice little story. This is some years after the flood. Uh, people are beginning to repopulate the planet. They're all speaking one language. They go to a place called Shiner. They settle down and they, they engage in a massive building campaign. They're trying to build a city for themselves and a ginormous tower in the middle of the city. All sounds cool. But, but it's not cool because just beneath the surface, a rebellion is brewing. And it's a rebellion against God. Now, that may not be immediately apparent to you, but let me show you some telltale evidences that this rebellion is going on. Look at verse 2. Begins as men moved eastward. Circled the word eastward in your Bible. That's not a good direction to go. You say, what's, what's wrong with going east? Well, throughout the book of Genesis, east is kind of a code word. When people are moving east, they're moving away from God. It's just Moses' way of signaling something good is not happening here. You know, it all begins back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve commit a sin against God. They're banished from the Garden of Eden. Guess which gate they leave through? The east gate. They head eastward, away from God. You know, a little later on in the book of Genesis, we'll read about a guy named Abraham, a godly man, but he had a nephew who was always getting himself in trouble, a guy named Lot. And at one point in the story, Abraham and Lot split up and Lot moves eastward to settle near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you know that's not a good direction to go? Okay, eastward. So here we got people moving eastward and Moses is sort of tipping us off. This, this is not good. They're moving away from God. There, there's another hint in verse 2. The last phrase says they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. 
If you got your own Bible, circle the word settled and then write in the margin of your Bible, contrast with Genesis 9-1. Okay, contrast this with what God says in chapter 9, verse 1. Now flip back to chapter 9, verse 1. This is just after the flood, Noah and his sons, his family, step off the ark and God blesses them and gives them a mandate. Okay, chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So a mandate is given to Noah, Noah and his descendants. If I could sum it up in a two-word directive, it's spread out. Okay, Noah, go fill the earth. And what do we find them doing two chapters later? Chapter 11, verse 2, are they filling the earth? Are they spreading out? Yeah, they're settling down. They're hunkering down in a place called a shiner. You know, almost as if, not almost as if, they, they are deliberately, defiantly disobeying God. And, and it wasn't just that, that starting building a city was a bad idea. It was the attitude which, with which they were doing the building. Look at verse 4, the verse that begins, uh, they said, come let us build ourselves a city. You see that? Four words I want you to circle in this verse. Circle the words us, ourselves, we, ourselves. You see a pattern there? <laughs> us, ourselves, we, ourselves. Who are these people living for? Call it out. Bartlett, let's hear it. Okay. St. Charles, I heard it. I'm not sure I heard Bartlett. Got to do louder. They were living for themselves. They were driven by a self-centered egotism. And If you think I'm exaggerating their egotism, look at Look at how they describe their motivation for building this city in the middle of verse 4. So that we may make a name for ourselves. So that we may make a name for ourselves. So, someone has said, you can make a big deal out of yourself, or you can make a big deal out of God, but you can't do both at the same time. Let me ask you today, are you making a big deal out of yourself? Is that one of your goals in life, explicitly or implicitly? You can make a big deal out of yourself, or you can make a big deal out of God, but you can't do both at the same time. These people were making a big deal out of themselves. One last indication in this opening paragraph of the story that these people did not have a healthy relationship with God. Middle of, of verse 4 in their city, they were constructing a tower that would reach to the heavens. Do you see that? Now, that tower, according to archaeologists, would have been a ziggurat. You may have seen a picture of a ziggurat at some time in a history book uh, on ancient Mesopotamia. A ziggurat was a pyramid-shaped temple shrine, temple tower. And there, there would be a stairway zigzagging its way to the top. And up at the top, a shrine would be built for the favored God. And the shrine oftentimes would be painted with blue enamel paint so that when you looked up at the top of this ziggurat, it would sort of blend into the sky, the celestial home of the God. The people who built ziggurats thought that they were building a stairway to heaven. In fact, they, they would, as, as they were building, they would sing Led Zeppelin's song. So, some of you are too young to get the joke, okay? Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Number three song on the rock history charts. Forget it, okay? <laughs> Building a stairway to heaven. Okay, 
Well, in Genesis 11, <laughs> yeah, these folks thought they were building a stairway to heaven. See, and on this stairway, they would be able to ascend to God. They would be able to hang out with God, and God would be able to come down and kind of chill with them. Their intention was to blur the line between God and people. You know, just to kind of buddy up, cozy up with God. We're, yeah, we're all in this together. Put themselves on par with God. For this is the pride that was behind the original sin. You'll recall in the Garden of Eden, God says, don't eat from this one tree, the forbidden fruit. And so the serpent comes along and tempts Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 5, this is the line that Satan uses on Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the temptation. No distinction between God and us. We kind of, kind of become our own God. This is a temptation that we, that we all face to be a legend in our own minds to behave as if we are the center of the universe, to elbow God aside and to run our lives as if we were in charge. I came across an interesting news blurb about Beyonce this past week. I asked our tech team, I said, can you come up with a modest picture of Beyonce? So had to be neck up. Beyonce, when she gets done with every performance, she goes back to her hotel room and she reviews it on DVD. And she takes reams and reams of notes and then she gives these notes to her team and says, here, fix it for next time, okay? And then she takes that DVD and she files it away in a temperature-controlled digital storage facility along with every photo that's ever been taken of her, every interview she's ever conducted, and reams and reams of film footage of her life. She has a visual director who takes up to 15 hours of film of her life every day. Yeah. And she says what she's trying to do is protect, control her personal branding. The, the quote in the article I read was, I know that, yes, I am powerful. I'm more powerful than my mind can digest and understand. Huh. Methinks Beyonce may exaggerate her own importance a wee bit. But, but you know, I'm reading that and I'm thinking to myself, isn't, isn't this something we all do? <laughs> we may not have a temperature-controlled digital storage facility for all our personal paraphernalia, but we've got a constantly updated Facebook page that tells the world the, the latest and greatest about every detail of our lives, and we're always Twittering, saying, now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that. Now I'm listening to the pastor, pastor rant about tweeting. You know? <laughs> and and we, we may not consider ourselves to be powerful like Beyonce, but we do our best to control the people and the circumstances around us. I mean, the fact of the matter is, every one of us aspires to be our own God. We make countless decisions every day, every day of the week, about priorities, about schedule, about relationships, about how we're going to spend our money. We make these decisions as if the one true living God had no say in the matter. We don't stop to consult with him. We de-God God and put ourselves on the throne. And I want to tell you, this is rebellion, pure and simple. And I want to tell you, it's, it's at the root of every sin in our lives. You may not think of yourself as a very big sinner. 
You know, you never murdered anybody. You've never committed adultery. You're not a White Sox fan. You know, <laughs> nothing really big. I want to tell you at the root of every sin in your life, there's a rebellious heart that's saying, I know God's said do this or, or don't do that, but you, you know, I'm going to do as I please. What makes even the smallest of our sins so serious is that they flow out of a spirit of rebellion. We're behaving as if we're God and God is not. Now that leads to scene two of the story. Go back to Genesis 11. Scene one, the rebellion. Scene two, the scattering. Pick it up at verse five. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, let's go down, confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now I love the way the second half of the story begins in verse 5. Let me remind you of the context. In verse 4, we've just learned that these people are making bricks and building a tower that's going to reach to the heavens. And then verse 5 begins, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The underline came down. The Lord came down. And in other words, this ginormous tower was so puny, God couldn't see it from heaven. He's got to come down. You know, where, where is that tower? You know, he takes out his cosmic magnifying glass. Tower, tower, tower. Is it? God's got to come to... I, I, reminds me of something Isaiah the prophet says about God in Isaiah 40, verse 22. He says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. You know, God, God has a way of you know, taking people who are too big for their britches and bringing them down to size. So, so how does he do it here? Well, he does two things in response to their tower building. The first thing he does is confuse their language. Look at verse 7. Now, this is where, circle the word confuse in the middle of the verse. This is where if we were reading the story in the original Hebrew, we would note a wordplay that Moses is, is introducing here. It's kind of neat. Let, let me try and describe it to you. The word confuse is made up of three consonants in the Hebrew language. N-B-L. Okay, N-B-L. I want you to say it with me. N-B-L. Okay, don't forget that. N-B-L. Now, that's verse 7. Go back up to verse 3. This is the beginning of the rebellion. They're starting to make bricks to build this ginormous tower that's going to reach to the heavens. The verb make bricks in the Hebrew, three consonants. The consonants are L-B-N. LB. What do you note about the order of those three consonants? Call it out if you, you see it. The, the absolute opposite of God confusing their language. So they're going to make bricks, build a tower, goes to heaven, LBN, LBN, LBN. God comes down and goes, NBL. You know, end of the tower building, God confuses them right there. And then they couldn't go on building because they couldn't communicate with each other. We, we, we think that we're such hot stuff pursuing our own ambitions, but God can intervene, turn our whole world upside down in the blink of an eye without any effort on his part. You know, verse 9 
tells us that this confusion, this confusion of language led to people calling this place Babel. This is another interesting play on words by Moses. In the Hebrew, the word Babel means confused or place of confusion. Okay, but in the original Akkadian language of that region, the word Babel means gateway of the gods. So these self-important, grandiose builders, they're building a tower and they say, let's call it Babel, gateway of the gods. And God comes, comes along and goes, uh, no, let's call it Babel, 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 place of confusion. Listen, friends, when we start acting as, as if we're our own gods, we're building our towers, you know, our successful vocations, we're collecting our sports trophies, we're getting into the college of our choice, but, but all along we're ignoring, we're neglecting God's word, we're, we're, we're making decisions without God's input in prayer. We're spending all our resources on ourselves as if it's our time, our money to do with as we please. We're setting our own standards of right and wrong. God is not impressed. God looks at it all and he says, babble, confusion. And then besides confusing the builders, the builders' language, there's something else God does to them. Look at verse 8. It says, so the Lord scattered them, circle the word scattered, scattered them from there over all the earth. Remember God's directive, his mandate to Noah and his descendants? God had said, fill the earth, spread out. But the people didn't spread out. So you know what God did? He spread them out. God scattered them. God always gets his way. You know, I don't say that because he's like a child throwing a tantrum. I say that because he's the God of the universe. He always gets his way. If you think that you can formulate a plan, run your own life, you're going to find yourself kicking against a brick wall. And the brick wall's not going to move. It's just going to hurt your foot. Ever heard of a guy named Gordon Hall? You know, I, I read an illustration in a book recently about Gordon Hall. Uh, the book quoted from a 1987 newspaper article about this guy. Gordon Hall at the time, 1987, was 32 years old. He was worth over $100 million. He was living in a 55,000-square-foot mansion outside of Phoenix overlooking Paradise Valley. He had the world by the tail. And he announced to the newspaper he had some big plans for his life. He planned to be a billionaire by the time he was 40. He planned to build a 62-story tower... I'll bet that's a bit of a tip-off, huh? 62-story tower in downtown Phoenix, and he planned to live to be 120 years old. And according to this 1987 newspaper article, he closes with this quote. Gordon Hall says, As God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a God, and I believe it. That's why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a God. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes. I believe I can do anything too. Now, I read this illustration in my book, and I was immediately curious, like, what happened to this guy? Because the rest of the story wasn't told. And so I Googled Gordon Hall this last week, and I discovered, I came across a newspaper article written 10 years later, 1997. And I learned that in that 10 years period of time, he hadn't become a, mil a billionaire. He hadn't built a 60... 
62-story tower. In fact, he'd lost most of his money. He'd had to sell his mansion. And the reason that he was in the news 10 years later in 1997 is because he'd just gone to jail. He'd been convicted in federal court of trying to manipulate the stock market. In fact, he'd been part of a conspiracy that included mob bosses who were trying to infiltrate Wall Street. There's a lesson for us here in this story. If we, we insist on living with the false impression that we are large and in charge, God will eventually bring us to our knees. It may happen in this world. It may happen in the life to come. But God will eventually bring us to our knees. It is best if we, we don't wait for God to do this to us. It is best if we do this to ourselves. It is best, friends, if we choose to get on our knees before Almighty God and surrender our lives to Him, repent of our sin of marginalizing Him and running our lives as if we're God. And if you've never done this before, very deliberately, very consciously, I encourage you to do it today. To say, God, you are God and I am not. And I understand that Jesus is not only a Savior, but He's a King, and I want Him on the throne of my heart. And if you make a decision like this, you're thinking, yeah, that's probably what I need to do. I say, make it concrete by after our service, going to the Welcome Center at one of our four campuses and saying to somebody there, I'm surrendering my life to Christ today. I want him to be my king. And that person will pray with you and give you what we call a next steps packet that will help you take next steps in a relationship with God. Do it today. And you want to know something else? Even if you've done this and Jesus is your Savior and King. This is something every one of us needs to do every day of our lives, to get up in the morning and remind ourselves as we climb out of bed, this is your day, God. You're in charge, not me. I want you to be my God. I want you to be my King. I want to follow you. I'm going to read your word. I'm looking for direction for my life. You get it? Good. Good. The scattering. Let me take you to scene three. The mission. Now, if your Bible's open to Genesis 11, you may have noticed that the story of the Tower of Babel concludes at verse 9. I mean, it's, it's over. We're done with it. God confuses the language of these people and then scatters them over the entire earth. And that's how we got nations. But is that the Bible's final word about nations? Because if it is, it's a bit of a bummer. You know, kind of ends confusion and scattering. No wonder I was so frustrated when I flew down to Brazil and I tried to communicate with these church leaders and I got a headache doing it. You know, this is the fallout from the Tower of Babel. It's confusion and scattering. And some of you are saying, well, wait a second, in that opening anecdote you told, there was a flip side, wasn't there? There was your son playing soccer with those Brazilian boys and experiencing community together. Well, there is a flip side. The good news, there's a flip side to the story of the nations. Only you don't find it in the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis. You find it in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. So I want you to turn with me right now to Matthew. Matthew, last chapter, chapter 28. And as you're looking for Matthew 28, let me give you a little bit of background to the text I'd like to read to you. Hey, Jesus has just been crucified and then three days later raised from the dead. Now, he was crucified in order to pay the penalty for our sins. 
When we defied the living God, the God that gives life, the penalty was death. Jesus took our death in his own person on the cross, and he gives us his life in exchange if we'll put our hope and trust in him. When he was raised from the dead, he was raised with power, power that he can give you today to live a different kind of life, power to live with purpose, power to overcome sin on a daily basis, power to experience one day eternal life in his presence. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and now he's about to leave the planet and return to heaven. This is the end of his story in the Gospel of Matthew. He gathers his followers together, and he gives them a mission. Bible scholars refer to this as the Great Commission. And I want to read it to you in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This mission has something to do with the nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What's the mission that Jesus gives to his followers? Verse 19, call it out. What is it? To make disciples of whom? All nations were to take the good news of Jesus Christ to every people group on the planet. In fact, to underscore the importance of this mission, let me tell you what happened shortly after Jesus gave, gave his disciples this great commission. Jesus goes back to heaven. He, he had told his disciples, now I want you to wait in Jerusalem. When I get back to heaven, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish your mission. So they're huddled up in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus goes back to heaven, and, and shortly thereafter, the Spirit of God falls on them, fills them, empowers them. And this all happens on a festival day in downtown Jerusalem. They're celebrating a, uh, a religious festival called Pentecost. And, and these followers of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, begin speaking in other languages. And everybody there is hearing the good news about Jesus in his or her own language. You see what's happening here. God is reversing what had happened at the Tower of Babel. Okay, At the Tower of Babel, people had been confused. They'd been speaking one language, but now they were speaking all sorts of languages and couldn't understand each other. On the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit fell on his disciples his followers, and now they're speaking clearly, cogently, in the language of the people who'd come for this religious festival from every part of the then-known world, and they're hearing the good news of Jesus in their own language. And whereas God had scattered them at the Tower of Babel, now in response to the message that, they, that they're hearing in Jerusalem, people are being gathered into God's community. He's reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel. You see this? You see that? This is the mission this is the mission of the church today. We're to take the good news of Jesus to the nations. I came across a story uh, of this, this mission that was, uh, just gripped me so a week or so ago. Uh, this mission being accomplished in a squalid refugee camp in South Africa. Most of the people in the refugee camp were from Mozambique. They had fled civil war there and indescribable atrocities, uh, raping and pillaging and murders, 
people getting hacked to death with machetes and so on. And so they had escaped to this refugee camp in South Africa. And, and one day, 30 or so Christ followers from the West show up. And they're bringing with them humanitarian aid. They've got water. They've got food. They've got building materials. And they've also got a film about Jesus. Well, one day they decide to show the film. So in the afternoon they begin the setup. They begin to uh, they get the projector out. They begin to set up this makeshift screen. And the minute they do that, witch doctors in the refugee camp get up and start dancing and throwing bones on the ground and doing demonic ritualistic sorts of things. It's obvious that a power encounter is about to happen. A showdown. That evening, after much prayer, these 30 Christ followers flip on their projector. About a 1,000 people have gathered. They're curious about what's going to go on that screen. And they begin to watch the story of Jesus. Now, the soundtrack is in English. So one of the Christ followers has to interpret, and he stands there with a handheld mic, and line by line translates the movie for these people. And they get to the part where Jesus is crucified, and something amazing happens people begin to weep. I mean, they begin to howl. They begin to mourn. And so they have to turn off the projector, and the guy with the mic explains. He says, you know, Jesus did this for you. See, you you deserve to die in your sins. That's the penalty before a holy God. But Jesus took your death. And immediately, without saying a word, people began to confess their sins. Grown men were beating their chests. Others were calling out, oh God, oh God. People were falling to their knees, some on their faces. In fact, even some of those showing the Jesus film, these Christ followers began repenting of sins that had built up in their own lives. And after about 30 minutes of this, they figured, well, we better turn the projector on. They need to know the end of the story. And so they flipped it back on. And when it got to the resurrection, guess what happened? People start cheering People start high-fiving each other, jumping up and down, dancing. And they, they come to the end of the movie, and they turn the whole thing off, and they extend, the guy with the mic extends an invitation. If you'd like to trust Jesus as your Savior, as your King today, we want you to come forward. Everybody came forward. All thousand people came forward. Now, you know, I'm reading this story, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, would it be cool to be there and see something like that happen? I mean, how can we be part How can we be part of a mission like this? I'm I'm not just talking about sharing Christ with your friends and your family. I hope you're doing that. I hope you're telling your story, if you're a Christ follower, of what Jesus has come to mean to you, that you're sharing it at school, and you're finding ways to work it into conversation at work and among your friends, your neighbors, and so on. But right now, I want to talk about taking this message to the world, to the nations, You know, today in our announcement spot on all four campuses, we laid out a real simple, straightforward challenge. We said we want you to pray, to give, and to go. Let me quickly review that. Pray. How many of us are praying for our international impact partners at Christ Community Church? There are only six of them. We, we deliberately put a lot of time, effort, a lot of financial resource into a small number of partners so that you can get to know them. And today we're not asking you to even get to know all six of them, but to get to know one, to take a sticker and put it on a map and say, I'm going to own this country. I'm going to get to know our international impact partner there, and I'm going to pray at least once a week for that partner. Will you do that? Will you pray? Would you begin to pray and ask God to give you a heart 
for the nations by choosing one nation. And then we said, give. And there are a couple ways you could do this. The most basic way is this. Okay. A percentage of every week, weekend offering goes to international impact. And the best way to give to the nations at Christ Community Church is just to become a regular giver at our weekend services. You know, that means if you're not a regular giver, you're not contributing to our international partners yet. And when we make announcements about what's happening in Bangladesh and Sierra Leone and Brazil, you may say, oh, this is so cool to be part of this. But you're not part of it. You've got no skin in the game yet until you become a giver. So you become a regular giver with the offerings and a percentage of everything you give goes to international impact. The second way you could give is to find out who's going on one of those go team trips. Maybe somebody in your community group and make the effort to give 100 bucks. Now Maybe you can only do 50, maybe you could do $500. But each one is raising a few thousand dollars for their go team trip and you could be part of it just by being a giver toward that trip. Every year, Sue and I do this for a lot of people at Christ Community Church. I'm not telling you this because I want your mail, okay? Like I'm going on a go team trip because we give to the people we know personally, all right? And so don't try to get to know me between now and your go team trip either. But I just want to tell you, it's a joy. It's, we set aside money every year to do this for friends who are going on go team trips. So you pray and you give and then you go. It's our goal at Christ Community Church that every one of our regular attenders would go on a go team trip at least once every three years. Now some of you have never gone and we're after you. Okay? Because we want you to experience the joy of this. You know, to go on a go team trip. Just an aside here. This last week, Thursday night, Sue and I drove to Lombard to listen to a presentation about a vacation club. Now, why are we doing this? That's what I asked my wife on the way there. She said, why, tell me again, why are we doing And she said, well, because the advertisement says if you go and you listen to a 90-minute presentation, you get two round-free plane tickets anywhere in the U.S., and we've got a daughter who's pregnant in Portland, and we thought, yeah, thinking ahead. So we go, and we listen to this 90-minute presentation because we're going to listen, we're going to take our tickets, and we're going to run. And it was so sleazy. I mean, the whole thing. I looked at Sue at one point, and I said, I don't like you. You know, I, you, I, I can't believe you did this to me on a Thursday night, you know? And so we... we, we we come to the end, and we took our tickets, and we left. Actually, they had a drawing for a special prize. Guess who won the special prize? <laughs> yeah, yeah, God was smiling on us that night. But we're watching, the, I'm seeing cruise ships, and I'm seeing sandy beaches, and all-you-can-eat buffets and things. And you know what I'm thinking to myself? That doesn't look nearly as fun as the go team trips I've been on. In fact, I bet I've been on ten time, to ten times the number of countries than the, than the guy making the presentation. But I didn't stay in five-star hotels. I stayed in a barrio in Mexico or a little village up in Bangladesh or you know, some, some outlying uh, village in Sierra Leone. But it was wonderful. It was purposeful. I'd rather do that than one of these vacations any day. And if you've been spending your money on vacations and you're thinking, I can't go on a go team trip because I don't have the time to do that, just use some of your vacation travel and do a go team trip and you won't be sorry. You'll be glad that you chose to do it. You get it? Good. 
Now, there's one last scene to this story. My time is up, you know, but I got to give you a glimpse of the final scene of the story. The story about the nation, scene one was the rebellion, scene two, the scattering, scene three, the mission, mission. You know, no greater joy than seeing people respond to the good news of Christ in another nation. To see God reversing the tragic consequences of the Tower of Babel. To see God replacing confusion with understanding. To see him taking scattered people and gather them to himself. The mission. But scene four is the celebration. Now, we began with the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I'm going to take you in closing to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So turn to Revelation chapter 5. This is a description of what's going on in heaven right now. Okay, as I'm speaking on the platform of Christ Community Church in St. Charles to our regional campuses, this is what's happening in heaven right now. And it's what scripture tells us is going to continue to happen through all eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. What's happening is Jesus is being celebrated. So pick up the story at verse 9. Everybody in heaven is singing. They sang a new song. You, speaking to Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is the scroll of history. okay? Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. When Jesus died upon the cross... It was so that he could redeem people from everywhere around the globe, everyone who would put their hope and trust in him. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. If you're a Christ follower, this is you, okay? And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. There's a party going on in heaven and there are people from every nation on the planet at the party. You know, the only time I've experienced even a small taste of this on the earth was several years ago. We were in New York City for a vacation. And on Sunday, we decided to go to church at Times Square Church. Now, if you ever have a chance to be in Manhattan on a weekend, check out Times Square Church. It's a huge church, a Bible-teaching, Christ-honoring church. We got there 20 minutes early, and we were already late because the place was packed, and the place was humming. Okay, and we squeezed in in an upper balcony and we looked around and here in downtown New York City, there were people from every race and every color and every conceivable background. We saw Chinese, we saw East Asian Indians, we saw Puerto Ricans, we saw Jamaicans, we saw wealthy people who must be working on Wall Street in their fancy suits, and we saw homeless people. And then the band began to play, and we all stood up, and we sang together with one voice, praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. At one point, we were asked to hold hands, and we're all lifting our hands together, and there was a sense of unity, and I looked around and I said to Sue, this is like heaven. I mean, this is like what heaven is going to be like. Friend, I hope you're headed there. I hope you're going to be part, part of this celebration. But I also hope you bring some people with you. And not just family members and not just neighbors. I hope you bring people with you from other nations. People whom you've touched through praying and giving and going. You're going to be part of the party? 
Yes, that was weak. You're going to be part of the party? You're going to take somebody with you? Yes. Now, here's what we're going to do. It would be so inappropriate to end with, let's bow our heads in prayer, and that's it. Because there's so much excitement reflected in this final passage that we got to close with a song. And so we're going to have our worship bands at all four of our campuses come on stage at this point. Our pastors, our regional pastors, are going to close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song together. So stand with me, and let's pray. Lord God, I want to take a moment right now because my sense is in a crowd this size spread over four campuses, uh, there, there are people who've never bent their knee to you, never genuinely said, God, forgive me for trying to be God of my own life. Forgive me for building my little tower that I think is so big and fancy and in reality it's puny. And right now, I want to I want to bend my knee. I want to confess Jesus to be the Savior, the Lord, the King of my life. I want to be forgiven based on what he did on the cross for me when he paid for my sins. And I want his spirit to come live on the inside of me. And I want to take next steps in a walk with God. God, I pray that you would hear the prayer of any, anyone praying this from sincerity, from their heart right now that they would truly be born again, that Jesus would become their king. And I want to pray for those of us who've made this decision at some point in the past. If, we have, if we've been susceptible, if we've allowed ourselves to be allured into building our own little kingdom, forgive us, God. May this day be a day of recalibration, a day of resurrender to you. May we make it our habit the beginning of every morning to give our lives afresh to you. And we want to be part of the mission. We want to be part of the mission of uh, turning, reversing the fallout of Babel and bringing understanding and gathering to the nations. So use us. Help us to take steps to pray and to give and to go. As we leave here, may we put that sticker on a country and own it and begin to see you work in it as we faithfully pray for it. And God, I pray that as we get a heart for the nations, that you'd also change our heart for the people who live right around us, people who live across the backyard fence, people who work right next to us in the office or at the plant, people who are in geometry class with us, you know, people we run into every day, let us bring them the good news of Jesus. We look forward to the party in heaven. We, we try to imagine, even now as we close, what it's like because we know the party's already begun. It's already started. As we sing this closing song, give us a heart, heart's desire to be part of that party and bring others with us to the celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.